0: All right, well, last week um week sixteen or so we we started Solomon and we finished up David um, today um, we will finish Solomon and we will get to see Solomon as ruler um, after the passing of his father after the um attempted um after his one of his brothers made an attempt on the throne, Solomon ends up as king of Israel. And I alluded to this some that that he will be king over really Israel, the greatest, the largest, the richest, the most powerful Israel we will see in the Old Testament was presided over by Solomon. Um, Part of that is certainly God's blessing who promised promised to give this time to Solomon and um, instead of a time of war as much as his father had, Solomon will have mostly peace in his reign. And um, it just, this, this, is, this is a height. As far as we will as see Israel climb from being nomadic shepherds to being what they are under Solomon is, is uh, the highest we will see them climb. And then, unfortunately, following this, um, we will see the, the splitting of the kingdom, a lot of uh, comparatively short-lived and bad kings, uh, rampant sin, and a degeneration of this once glorious kingdom. But we're not there yet. We're beginning with Solomon as king over Israel. We're in 1 Kings 3. And um, one of Solomon's first actions as king um, was to make an alliance with a a powerful nearby um, old nemesis, and that's Egypt. Um, It's very significant in that he was actually given <clears throat> Pharaoh's daughter in marriage. Um, this signifies a couple things. One, Egypt being a great power, Solomon as king over Israel, being offered the Pharaoh's daughter as a wife, shows the power of Israel at that time, the rising power, Egypt, you know. the Pharaoh didn't give his daughter away to just anybody. It shows that Israel has truly become someone. Um, they, they, have, um, they have arrived, and it, it, shows, it shows that, but it also shows, unfortunately, um, a pattern of marriage that we will see that will eventually lead to the downfall of this very otherwise successful king over Israel. Um, and Scripture records that at this time we see Solomon... Um, he loved the Lord. He walked in the, in the statues of his father David. Um, as a matter of fact, I thought it was interesting. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on the high altar, and this young king, God appears to him in a dream. And God makes a, a sort of a remarkable, a remarkable statement. God asks Solomon what, what, what he desires that God should give to him. I mean, this is like, it's like a magic lamp almost, right? It just appears like, what do you want me to give to you, right? And, and some people, some kings, certainly a young king, a young king could use many things, right? More power, more wealth, more prestige, a bigger army. There's a lot of things that come to mind if you just became king and you're new at the job. There's a lot you could think of that, you, that at this time you might be like, God just basically arrived and asked me what I wanted to give, you know, what I wanted to be given, I could ask for any of these things, you know. And, but Solomon here makes a he, he makes a, he makes a very interesting statement. Um, he speaks with humility. He speaks, um, he, he affirms, in, in response, he affirms the love and steadfastness that God showed toward David, his father. He also acknowledges that it is God who has made him king, and he says he does not know, he doesn't have all the knowledge necessary at this point to lead, to lead his people. I'll read to you here from First Kings 3, 7, Solomon responding to God, and now, O Lord my God, you, made, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern your great people? And I kind of alluded to this last week. This is amazing. This is Solomon saying, I don't know what I need to know to be king. And I don't have all of the mental skill that it's going to take I want to govern your people rightly, Lord. I'm young. I'm inexperienced. I don't know all that I need to know. Can you give me that knowledge? This is the last time that Solomon would ever be able to say something like that. I just don't know what I need to know. The last time. Because remember, Solomon is going to become the wisest man the world has ever seen. He wasn't born that way, and that's important. Solomon didn't grow up with a photographic memory and wowing everyone around him constantly. You have to understand, he wasn't born that way. God made him that way. It's an important difference, okay? Because most of the people in our society that we would think of as having extremely high IQ or great wisdom, I mean, you read stories about like two or three-year-olds that are already putting together sentences and words and reading. They're born that way. Solomon wasn't born that way. Out of all the things he could have asked, instead of asking for something that to glorify himself or to protect himself. to make He says, what I really need, God, is your wisdom. And it so pleases God that he asks for wisdom to govern his people um, that he gives Solomon not only this wisdom, the greatest mind in history, but God also gives him honor and riches, blessings that Solomon didn't even ask for. God was so pleased by that request That he gave him above and beyond what he'd asked for. And Solomon becomes the wisest man that has ever lived. He wasn't before, but he becomes that. And God also promises to lengthen Solomon's days if he keeps God's commandments. And then Solomon wakes up. And as we move forward with our study of Solomon, it's important that we sort of capture and remember how we see him at this moment. And what characteristics are evident in Solomon at this point in his reign? From what he says, from what he asks for. Is he a mighty king? What is his heart like? I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. I feel like what he says about himself, what he asks for from God, just becoming king, what are your thoughts on Solomon right now? What do we know about him? This isn't Solomon as he will become, this is Solomon as he is at the very beginning of his reign. Any thoughts at all?
1: Bridget. The one thing that kind of stands out to me is um, he has to have a humble heart to realize, God, I don't know what I don't know. So to be able to ask for wisdom. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's often different than what young people usually are like. People usually think they can do it even if they don't really know how to do
0: it. So someone of comparative youth, I agree completely, someone of comparative youth put in a position of immense power who is suddenly granted a request with the living God, from the living God, you know, what are you going to ask for? And and I think you're right. I think it shows humility. I think it shows... It's unusual that someone that age in that position would ask for that. Greg?
2: Well, it shows a certain amount of uh, discernment that he recognizes that uh, riches isn't his best solution, although it would uh, help mm. uh, in certain, you know, running a country, certainly. Mm. But he's smart enough to know that he doesn't know everything he needs to know. So he's got that going for him. Uh, he's, I don't know, he's already made this. This alliance with Egypt, has he not? Uh, that was not a wise thing. Uh, but we we certainly see. I mean, I agree certainly with Bridget that he 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 gets it that I I need to run this country, uh-huh. and and I I'm not doing it. I may, he may even recognize I've not done it well so far. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah. being the smartest person in the world, I can't imagine the mental stress that would be Uh because as you see your country in trouble or going through difficult times you know it's up to you to figure it out amen
0: and 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 i i think that's right there's a lot of pressure there um also the fact that that he asked with the intention he didn't ask to be intelligent so that he could sit around and amuse himself and his friends with his knowledge all day long. Yeah, so that I can govern God's people. So I, it really, this request really pleased God. Um, so it's just interesting that we, that we see Solomon as he is now so we can kind of track how he develops and changes through um, this narrative. But, um, and it says in 1 Kings 4.29, God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. It's an amazing statement. It really is. And um, interestingly, um, God gave Solomon such a mind that along with his more um, famous judgments about like case law, remember the the most famous story is the the two prostitutes with the baby. Um, He also, Solomon had great command over songs and proverbs. Um, 3,000 proverbs and why is that important? Because this is, this is really interesting, too, to me. Um, 3,000 Proverbs today, if you, to, if you were told someone had memorized 3,000 verses or knew 3,000 Proverbs, in today's world, what is that? It's entertaining. It's a cool parlor trick. It's something you can tell your friends. You're just like, oh, man, he memorized 3,000 verses. That's amazing. Yeah, that's cool. You know, that's neat. But it doesn't mean the same thing today it meant back then. Um, why not? Anyone make that connection, Lee?
3: Well, it was an oral society. Things everybody didn't have books, and even the scrolls of, absolutely you know, were
0: pretty rare. Absolutely, we. It's funny because we've just we're being steeped in the written law and written history of Israel. Written accounts like that did not, did not happen much in the ancient world, not to this extent. The ancient world was a heavily orally based culture. Someone who had knowledge, they didn't have cell phones, they didn't even have books. So to have that kind of information locked away in your mind where you could access it, someone comes to you with a question, you've got a proverb that addresses it. Someone comes to you and wants a judgment made between two parties, I have proverbs in my mind Sayings that are you know sayings of wisdom, and I can find sayings of wisdom that apply in this case and render judgment. It, it it is something that we can't really understand because we can always type something and find it. We have dictionaries, we have all these things. It didn't exist, so for, you have to you have to see yourself as someone maybe coming before this great king on his ivory throne, who who wants a judgment who. You know, very likely you can't even read. You know, and you don't have a a scope of history the the way we understand it now. And just for Solomon to have this mind that can access these things and apply it to your situation makes him so useful and so unique. Also, can I can can I interrupt? Go ahead. Um,
3: I mean, I I know that was amazing for Solomon, but Mm -hmm. this was pretty much everybody did it. If you knew anything, think of probably every family could recite its genealogy back 10 Mm -hmm. or 20 generations. Mm -hmm. So this was pretty common, except that, yeah, the the stuff he had memorized, of course, was like wisdom and special stuff
0: from God. It's passed down, like you said, it's oral tradition. You teach these things to your children, and... They pass it down to their children via oral tradition. What makes Solomon different is the depth of the knowledge and the breadth of the knowledge. He knows more than you do. He go, his knowledge goes back further. He has more, he has more uh, width to his knowledge as well. His knowledge not only goes beyond the law, this is kind of fascinating to me, it even extends to the natural world. Um, scripture records that he has knowledge of what today we would call zoology and botany. And that, too, just makes Solomon unique. It's just like he's more than just a judge. He has knowledge of the natural world, plants and animals and and things like that. Again, such a wide breadth of wisdom and such a depth of wisdom that makes him different and makes him stand out. And people of all nations, as well as kings of the earth, come to hear the wisdom of Solomon. So that's a change that's a real change. From the young king who was like, God, I don't know what I need to know to govern these people, to someone that other potentates would, would, would travel to hear from. Have you heard about this guy Solomon? There's nobody like that. We've got to go learn from him. We will travel to go see him. And, and that is a big change for Israel. Now, we have these foreign emissaries, foreign visitors, and this influx of people. What would, what would foreign visitors... What effect would that have on the nation of Israel? What would it bring? What are some of the good things? What are some of the bad things? Wealth, yeah. When you travel, when, you, when, 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 a, when a royal retinue travels, there's gonna be a lot of wealth that's brought with it. So wealth, it's gonna bring that. Prestige kind of goes along the same thing. This is Israel up here right now. People are wanting to hear from Solomon what what are some other things, maybe not so good of things, that would be brought with foreign emissaries and visitors? Idolatry. Idolatry, yes. Co- Shame on you.
3: Well, I think when you also have, like, the
1: influence of the outside world coming in or other nations, it can be tempting to see, oh, here are the great things that they have. And so, I don't know, you can kind of be swayed or pulled to those things or... Like, just even yeah. though Solomon is, you know, their greatest king and a mm-hmm. lot of wealth and prosperity mm-hmm. came with him, I think it can still be tempting to look at other countries in the outside world and go, but we could always be better or, I don't know. It's true. Kind of swayed I, by them. I, I
0: think that the temptation of other ways of, of doing things, other gods, is certainly there. Um, we will see that even Solomon, with all of his wisdom, is not immune to this um, in his later life. So it's it's... It would change Israel both both for the good and the bad. Um, Solomon, moving forward, he uses his wisdom to put in place a government that's going to um, govern, help govern Israel. He has secretaries, a recorder. He has Benaiah, remember last week, um, the commander of the army. And he sets up 12 regional officers governing over Israel, and the officers would rotate through one per month and would also, each one for one month of the year would be... Um, in charge of providing food for Solomon and for his household. Um, and then they would rotate through. So we see Solomon here using some of his wisdom to delegate some of the tasks of governing to put in place a structure of government that works. Um, it's interesting, as you, if you read through this in more detail, a lot of the times when he sets up things, it's, rotate, it's, it's rotational. When, when he starts drafting forced labor to build the temple, it's rotational. You, you work for a while, then you're home for a while. Um, sort of a, you might say, a very balanced approach. Um, and it's, we just see his wisdom there setting all this up. Um, and it is, it is really here at this time that um, under Solomon's considerable administrative abilities that Israel reaches its political zenith, you might say, and God's people are numerous, well-fed, happy. The kingdom reaches a, an even larger size. And not only that, even beyond the borders of the kingdom, um, Solomon has regularly brought tribute and people serve him. Also, despite the fact that they're relatively at peace or perhaps this is part of the reason they're at peace, um, um, his, Solomon's military power has certainly grown. 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen. He has a fleet of ships um, that gives him dominion over many nearby kings. Um, scripture records that, quote, He had peace on all sides around him, and Judah and Israel lived in safety, from Dan, even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. That sounds like a political ad. That's so good. That's like, vote for me, and you're going to have security, safety, money, plenty of food, plenty of everything. Your life will be amazing. That's Israel right now. Um, As to... As to the riches um, of Solomon himself, um, there's there's such that really trying to list them would just take too much time. But in 1 Kings 10, if you want to read about um, just very wealthy. Again, this was something that God gave him in addition to the wisdom he asked for. Solomon's um, yearly intake of gold, um, if I've done the calculations correctly, was something on the order of 50,000 pounds of gold every year, not counting what was brought in from other sources and tributes and that kind of thing. Extreme wealth. Um, and Solomon, Solomon, before we move on to the temple, I, uh, this is a book on the history of Jerusalem. It is not a book written, uh, it's a very secular history. I only brought this because I thought you would think it was interesting to see that Solomon is given great weight even by secular historians. Um. And I'm just going to read for you a short section of this. Everything Solomon had was bigger and better than any ordinary king. His wisdom generated 3,000 proverbs and 1,005 songs. His harem contained 700 wives and 300 concubines. His army boasted of 12,000 cavalry and 1,400 chariots. These expensive showpieces of military technology were housed in his fortified towns while his fleet was anchored at the Gulf of Aqaba. Solomon traded with Egypt and Cilicia in spices and gold, chariots and horses. He shared trading expeditions to Sudan and Somalia with his Phoenician ally, King Hiram. More on him later. He hosted the Queen of Sheba, who came to Jerusalem with a very very great train of camels that bore spices and much gold and precious stones. So this, even even the secular world affords Solomon an important place in history and a very... um, Very great, great position at this time. So what happens next? Well, with the kingship and the kingdom secure, Solomon turns his attention to building a temple for the Lord. We all remember that David, his father, wanted to do it. Um, Solomon said, it will be your king. Uh, Excuse me, it will be your son, not you. God tells him that it will be his son who will build the temple. And now comes the time when Israel is really in a position to do so. And Solomon enlists, enlists the help of King Hiram of Tyre to attain the precious cedar and cypress trees that he needs um, he makes payment for it again here um, of Tyre if, if you guys aren't familiar with it I Tyre is one of the oldest um, continually inhabited cities on earth it's located about a hundred miles north of Jerusalem on the east coast of the Mediterranean Sea today it's part of uh, Lebanon um, it's and At this time, it was um, inhabited by a people called the Sidonians. Well, Solomon makes deals to obtain this lumber to build the house of God. Well, how does he get it there? Well, that's interesting. First of all, he he delegates the work to the men of Tyre, pays them for it, has them cut it down. The trees are harvested, made into big rafts, and floated down the sea close to Israel. And then taken... To where the temple will be constructed, Solomon's temple. Solomon uh, also begins to amass all this manpower that's going to be required. So he drafts three thirty thousand Israelites and sends them in rotating shifts to Lebanon to help with this work. But also, and, and again, it's a rotating schedule. They work and then they're at home, they work and then they're at home. He also uses 80,000 cutters and 70,000 bearers to quarry, shape, and transport the costly and enormous stones for the temple foundation. This is kind of cool, something I <clears throat> thought was fascinating. We think about, and I gave you guys a kind of a diagram of it, this massive structure with these huge stones on site, no hammers, no instruments of iron. It has to fit perfectly, and these giant blocks, some of which are. Room-sized, basically, have to be cut perfectly at the quarry, because there is no hammering. There's no there, there's no, no 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 iron instruments. There's no sound of that at the place where the temple of God will be. I thought that was fascinating. So these trees are being cut down, harvested, floated down the sea. We have these massive stones being quarried. Um, Solomon is appointing all these men to over the project to help with it. And the construction of the temple begins in the fourth year of Solomon's reign, 480 years after the exodus. It takes seven years to complete. And again, the, the, the design of the temple, there's a lot you can get into there. It is a beautiful, elaborate structure, a lot of cedar wood covered with gold. It's very ornate. It has a lot of the features that the tabernacle had, but everything is bigger and more beautiful and more grand. Um, the ark is brought after the completion of the temple. Glory of the Lord fills the house in a cloud. Solomon gives a prayer dedicating the temple, and sacrifices are made, including some 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. It's amazing. Um, and again, we don't really have time to dig, dig into that too much. I just wanted to bring that up as we went past um, how does having such a temple change the nation of Israel? Because remember, it's weird. 480 years since the Exodus, they've been doing their worship center primarily out of a tent, the tabernacle, right? It's interesting it's, you know, that this was still how they were getting it done. How does this change, thing for, change things for Israel, having this giant, beautiful, ornate house covered with gold for God? Because God's presence, as it dwelt in the tabernacle, is now dwelling in the temple. How does this change things for Israel? Thoughts? Greg?
2: Well, it would certainly ratchet up their uh, prestige amongst their neighbors, neighboring uh, governments, Mm -hmm. to have such a lavish.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, they're known as as, as a people of a particular religion who follows a particular god. Monotheists, which again stands out in the ancient world anyway, and now you build a house like this, and they're like, "Wow, you know, the amount of gold and you know precious things that went into constructing it be very visible, um, and certainly would add to their prestige. It, it shows a, a permanence. It shows a this is where because remember the, the tabernacle was made to move, the temple in a sense was made to stay. Right here we are. This is our land.
2: It also make them a target.
0: True. It it also—
2: You wouldn't want to—you'd think it would maybe not be really useful to attack and try to conquer somebody that was doing their worshiping out of a tent. Yes. Uh, But once they had this lavish temple, well, whoa, you know, there's, there's gold to be had here. Yeah
0: i agree it puts a bit of a target on you and the temple is so lavish and so beautiful it would be it would seem ostentatious if it were for anyone other than the living god but truly yes you're saying like there's great wealth here there's a lot of wealth here which is okay as long as you can protect it but now it's it's everybody knows um so yeah this, this changes things um in a way um it's certainly a you know, this, this, was, this was the house for God that David wanted to build, and now it's completed. Solomon, being Solomon, also constructs a lavish palace for himself. Um, the construction of that would actually take 13 years to complete. It also has cedar pillars, beautiful precious stones, and really a house fitting for a king like Solomon, when you think about it. Um, interesting note, it even included a special uh, house for Pharaoh's daughter. So remember, we also have that thread here of the uh, Pharaoh's daughter, the foreign wives. Um, so remember, back near the beginning of Solomon's reign, God appears to him in a dream. Think about Solomon the way he was then. Think about what what he asks of God. And we think about what all God blesses him with. Okay, now here we are. Israel, rich, prosperous, powerful, a temple like no one's ever seen. Solomon's ruling out of a great palace. People are coming to see him, to learn from him. Now, God appears to him a second time. The Lord promises... Or in 1 Kings 9 now. And the Lord promises, as great as Solomon's throne is at this time, and the Lord promises that it, his throne will be established over Israel forever if Solomon will keep and follow God's laws. And the Lord then follows that with a warning about how Israel will be cut off from the promised land if Solomon turns away or serves other gods. And the Lord also promises that if Solomon or his children are faithless, The house of the Lord that he has consecrated for his name will be left in a heap of ruins. That's interesting. Very different situation, very different Solomon. God shows up this time and says, Solomon, you've, you've been brought so high. Israel right now, amazing. And it will stay that way. And your house will reign if you will follow in my way. If you don't, it will not. Also, that house... You know that the Lord is consecrated will be a heap of ruins. This is a warning, Solomon. Solomon is in a different position now, okay? He's not at the bottom of the mountain, he's at the top of the mountain. And God says he will sustain his family there if Solomon will be faithful and if his children will be faithful. So of course, as we know, that's not what happens. From from the highest of highs, Solomon loves many foreign women and is led astray by them in his old age. His heart no longer is fully faithful to God, the God who blessed him beyond all measure and has appeared to him twice. Appeared to him, like, like Solomon. Remember, that appearance, it wasn't as some of the um, times when God appeared to king in the p- kings in the past and was through an intermediary, through a prophet. No, God appeared to Solomon. He's like, what do you want? So, so Solomon has, has been blessed so much by God, God has appeared to him twice, and Solomon not only in his later years not only goes after the pagan gods of his wives, but he even built high places for his wives to make sacrifices. Um, and by the way, this is not a, a completely um. Th- th- this practice would have seemed okay in the ancient world, in so much like um one of the one of the um one of the um. Uh, Ancient world's most famous wonders um, is said the, the the hanging gardens in Babylon. Any of you ever read about that or heard of it? Maybe it 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 was said to be. Uh, this is not biblical. This is just his you know history. Um, that that was created by a king for a wife who missed her home country, right? I love you, honey, you came here to marry me, and I'm so rich and so powerful, I can make for you a place that will feel a little more like home, though we live out in the middle of the desert, right? You can look it up and read about it. There's some speculation there, but again, it wasn't unusual for kings at that time to have huge harems of wives that are from all over and even build things to make their wives feel more at home. But you know who it's not okay with? The living God. The God who gave Solomon his wisdom, the God who appeared to Solomon, God's not all right with that. As a matter of fact, Solomon had just been warned specifically about this. So, So, God is angry with Solomon's disobedience and the Lord informs Solomon he will tear his kingdom away. All this amazing kingdom around you, the gold, the wisdom, it will be gone. But God says that for the sake of David, it will be done after the time of Solomon. So, that's a very dire warning. And as we see, the end comes rather quickly. Um, an Israelite named Jeroboam who was given some charge over these forced labor camps that were part of Solomon's construction projects is informed by a Shilohite prophet that 10 of Israel's tribes will be taken away from the royal line and given to him, that is given to Jeroboam because of unfaithfulness. Jeroboam's not royal; he's an able Israelite, but he's not royal, um, at least not not from the line of Solomon. And the prophet also gives Jeroboam instruction from God that he is to walk in his way and keep his commandments. Well, this makes sense. Solomon seeks to kill Jeroboam, who flees to Egypt for safety, and then. The end comes. Solomon dies after a reign of 40 years. And his son, who is Rehoboam, reigns in his place. And hearing this, Jeroboam comes back from Egypt. So the people of Israel ask Rehoboam that is Solomon's son to reduce the heavy tax load. Remember way back when, way back when when Israel wanted a king and the prophet's going through all the things that king's going to do to you about you know taking taking your labor, taking your manpower, drafting you for his service. He's also going to take your money, right? Heavy taxes. Solomon's wealth didn't just spring out of the ground, okay? So, heavy tax burden, the people are just like Solomon's gone, new king on the throne could we please have a little break from our taxes? You know, um, I mean, it wasn't quite the Stamp Act, but you guys get the idea, all right? This was, you know, they're looking for some relief here. They don't think these taxes are just. And Rehoboam takes three days. He goes away and confers with the elders and the old men of Israel. And then after three days, he completely disregards their counsel and says, ah, you know what? I'm gonna make your taxes even worse. The burden's gonna be worse now. And the northern ten tribes of Israel respond by rebelling and making Jeroboam their king. Jeroboam, who's recently returned back from Egypt. So now we reach the point where, unfortunately, God's people are functionally existing as two kingdoms. And for, for simplicity's sake, and I'll try next week or maybe the week after to get you guys a map, but think of, like, Israel, as I've shown you, I've been referring to it as Israel collectively, the twelve tribes the northern ten tribes are now going to be called Israel. The tribes that remain with, loyal to Solomon's line, Judah, the very southern part, okay? So think about it that way. We have the ten northern tribes and the southern tribe, where there's Judah. Jerusalem, importantly, is down there. Um, but unfortunately now the, the, the kingdom is well and truly split. Um, and Jeroboam, of course, does not reign in the north as God has instructed him to. He has, a, he has kind of a problem. He has these people that, that have been connected by um, this, this um, religion, this faith to this one God. But again, Jerusalem's in the south. How can I be king of the north if my people have to go to the south to worship and sacrifice? That's not going to work. I mean, that, that shows subservience right there. I'm supposed to be the guy. What do we do? Well... Jeroboam makes two calves of gold and sets them up in cities to be worshipped. can't make that up. Two golden calves. And he adds to this sin by building temples, altars, and appointing his own priesthood made of non-Levitical priests. So now we have split the kingdom politically. The southern part, Judah, with Rehoboam, <clears throat> Solomon's son. The northern ten tribes under <clears throat> Jeroboam, and we have created separate places of worship. We have separate priestly class, classes. And this is where we begin the last, kind of the last major section, the divided kingdom, the last section in our study, the last section in, um, in uh, Israel's history in the Old Testament, because the, the, these two tribes will never be connected in the same way, that the, the, these two halves, the northern and southern kingdom will never be connected in the same way they were before. Um, so so very quickly it seems we go from the height of Israel in the Old Testament under Solomon, brought down by sin, now the kingdom divides, um, and that's where we find ourselves here. And before we go on, I'd love to hear your like, thoughts or comments on this or questions. Um, it, it, there's a lot going on, and there's a lot to get through here, and I, I crammed it in a little bit. Um, there's more detail with everything if you want to go through and read through it on your own. Um, it's a fascinating story, kind of a sad story too, <laughs> But um, also, if you want to know more about uh, Solomon's uh, mindset, I would recommend reading. um, There's more that's written by Solomon in the Old Testament. You can look that up Um, just to show his wisdom and to show his mindset toward the end. Um, Ecclesiastes has some really good stuff in there. But, uh, yeah, what do you guys think? What do you think about this whole downfall? Zach?
1: Uh, first was a comment that um, I just thought was interesting with um, back with David mm-hmm. that how um, where it talked about with his oldest son mm-hmm. he um, like never displeased him by telling him no or asking why have you done this and then it seems like Solomon well his son also didn't turn out to be a very good leader seemed to be mm-hmm. pretty proud and mm-hmm you know, full of himself. So either Solomon also kind of didn't do the best job as a dad or maybe it just shows like a son put in that position It's really hard Mm -hmm. no matter how maybe
0: good your father is teaching you that... No, No. having a really why his father didn't guarantee that Rehoboam would have success. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. And it is interesting. He had a very different approach from his father. His father was like, I don't know what to do. Please give me wisdom, God. You know, show me how to govern your people. Rehoboam gets up there, and and the people are like, please help us with this heavy burden your father's given us. And he goes, okay, I'll go away and talk to the, all the elders. And he talks to them. They're just like, yeah, you should do that. And he's like, okay, I won't do that. I'm going <laughs> to make it worse. So he had the total opposite, you know, response from where his father was. That's, I agree. Completely agree.
1: Yeah. And then I also had a question about just um, if you knew, um, it's not that important, but mm-hmm. I was just curious with the 10 northern tribes how it said that mm-hmm. he, they established a different non-Levitical priesthood. Because mm-hmm. there still would have been
0: Levites, like, all throughout Israel. Sorry, yeah, thank you for, thank you for clarifying like, did that. did they all move to the south, or? That, that is a good point. Um, non-levitical in that they're breaking from the, the the temple itself. Okay. They still may have been priests. Thank you for pointing that out. I may have misspoken there. They um it, it is a it is a priesthood but they're not connected to the temple the way the priesthood in the south would be. Thank you. Yes. Um
1: So maybe it was still like all the Levites or at least some of them, but they weren't doing things the way that they were. Exactly. Necessarily and like yes, by you're the right. Book there and may have anymore. been
0: there may have been Levites there as well. Um I probably was a better way to say that, non-Levitical in that they're breaking from the this is the temple, this is the... He needed a priesthood that could work for him in his place. And these had to be priests who were okay sacrificing in front of golden calves. Anyone who knows anything about Israel's history, that's a red flag right there. But it's sort of like King Henry and the Church of England. I need a religion that works for me here so that I'm not subservient to Rome, Right? So so there's a whole, like, I need a religion that, that, you know, keeps me in position and doesn't make me look like I'm the um, subservient to my southern neighbor. So they had to be priests who were willing to go along with stuff like that.
1: Yeah, it makes sense. There's probably a big split slash yep. yep. kind of who's yep. going to stay here and change the way they're doing things yep. and who wants yep. to stay
0: the way it was. So, yeah, so it could have been, you know, regional, regional priests that were willing to go along with that. Um, but like I said, they had to be willing to break those commandments.
2: Yes, Greg. Well, I'm not sure I'm going to know how to say this exactly, but this is a good example to us. Uh, Solomon was the smartest person to ever live on this earth, and I assume that would still be the case. And yet he sinned grievously. Yeah. Uh, so as we look at his example and we live our lives, our lives shouldn't be to gain knowledge, uh, thinking that, well, that'll make me closer to God. That alone will make me yep. closer to God and keep me from mm-hmm. doing wrong things uh, if I know the Bible better. Mm-hmm. Those things, don't misunderstand me, those things are all imp- necessary. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that alone is not going to obviously do it. Because right. C- look at Solomon. Yeah. Uh, Solomon had all the, the wisdom right. that God could offer him Mm-hmm. But he still could choose to do wrong things. And so yeah. in the, as we live our lives, our goal should be to amass information, uh, wisdom from God. But it has to be accompanied by submission and, and our, our love for him uh, at the same time. Or we'll end up just like Solomon, we're mm-hmm. smarter sinners. Yeah. Well, that's that is not help.
0: No, I, th- I think you put that very well. I think the, the, the submission to God and seeking after God, um, because again, just massive amounts of head knowledge about theology and about God, that's not enough. And it's really dangerous to, as you learn more about God or maybe become more skilled in like, theological topics to assume that you are past being vulnerable to these kinds of sins. It's tragic, but we hear about it. Um, theologians pastors who have, for years, given excellent exposition and have very detailed knowledge about the Holy Scriptures, falling into gross sin and being publicly disgraced, disqualified from the ministry. We hear about these things. It's not just head knowledge. Um, And um, again, it's very interesting. If if you read Ecclesiastes, which is, is a book many people have attributed to Solomon where it talks about... The vanity of self-indulgence, about you know um, the vanity of riches and wealth and that kind of thing. It, it is very fascinating that to hear Solomon speak in such a way. I, as I was getting ready for this, there was one verse in Ecclesiastes. It's Ecclesiastes one eighteen. For in much wi- for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. If Solomon wrote that, it's an interesting commentary on his whole, like, maybe I was really, really, really smart, but not, not close to God as I should have been. And it's almost like he was saying, you know, it, it might have been better if I had been a little bit more simple-minded, but a little closer to God. It's, very, it's, it's interesting, and again... Um, just the head knowledge was not enough, and, and he fell in a huge way. And it just very quickly, it seems like it took a long time to build up to Solomon's Israel, and then very quickly, you know, it split and was destroyed. And um, yeah, just the head knowledge alone won't get it. So um, you gotta keep, it's, it's the heart as well. And um, couldn't find a better example of that than Solomon, um, such a wise man. Other thoughts? Yes, Debbie.
2: Well, taking what you just said and what Greg said, I'm also thinking same thing happened again, and that is multiculturalism got in the way, and so did riches, mm-hmm. and so did too many sexual sins. Yes. And, um, hmm, you know?
0: Yeah, yes. Um, I I agree, and it is very, very sad. I... Uh, it's funny, um, way back when, I, I put a little note in your, um, in your uh, outlines, Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. Why did I bring that up? It just reminded me when you said that, Debbie. Um, this is the laws concerning Israel's kings that were given way back by Moses. And it's interesting, I've read these to you before, but some of the things that God said that a king was and was not to do you may indeed set a, king over, set a king over you when the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers shall be set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must, lest the king, must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, he shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excess silver and gold. Interesting. As far back as Moses, written in the law, we have a provision saying, hey, there's things a king is and is not supposed to do. Many wives and excess silver and gold are are not good things. They should not be done. And Solomon, with all his all his wisdom, what does he have? Wealth beyond measure. I mean, it's interesting, during the, with these big construction projects, it basically says that he made silver and gold commonplace. There was so much of it brought into Israel that the fine things became like everyday things, right? Like silver and gold and cedar wood weren't that special in the time of Solomon, they were everywhere. You can read more about that. But it's interesting, even as far back as the law of Moses, it's saying, don't have lots of wives, don't have excess wealth, Solomon, Yes, and 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 while that all that excessive stuff may not, certainly didn't interrupt his knowledge, it interrupted his his relationship with God, his closeness with God, and the next thing you know, he's setting up Israel to be split. And yes, Lee, I, of course,
3: I was just looking up. It's coming to my brain that Samaria is mixed up in this, and yes, I see according to Google <laughs> that uh, Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. Is that, have you seen that to be true scripture? I, um,
0: what, we'll get to the Sumerians a little bit later, but basically what we're gonna see is that the northern 10 tribes will be conquered and carried away and will not return. Uh-huh. The southern two tribes will be conquered and carried away but will return as the Babylonian captivity. We'll get to that. But what happens is when, when their people are carried away, there are still people that remain, okay? There's a few people still left, and that's the beginning of the Sumerians. It's sort of a mixing of, like, the Israelites that were left. Yeah,
3: they said that there was some ra- racism in the Old Testament, but mm-hmm. that that was it, that they were looking down on the Sumerians because yes. they were a mixed race. And that's, yes. of course, what yes. you, Jesus uh, you know, and the lady uh, at the well. You yeah. say, like—
0: you know, the southern, you know, we're Judah. We were brought back. We kept our identity and we kept together even in Babylon. You're a, the, the remnants of what's left over that has been intermingled with all the people around you. We'll get to that in more detail. I don't want to say too much until I've um, defined it a little better. But, yes, that is the beginning of the split between the north and the south. And that's where we will get to some of that stuff. And, of course, they had to, the north had to recreate some of the things they couldn't access from the south anymore. Um, so, yeah. I hope this was useful to you guys. Like I said, I have to compile it and compress it so much, but um, just, just Solomon kind of, um, his high and his lows. He's a fascinating, fascinating person. And again, if you want to learn more about Solomon, I would read some of Ecclesiastes. It's, it's, it's fascinating stuff. You know, I think it's right that we should be curious what the wisest man who ever lived would write down and what he thought was important. Um, and, and we will never study in Israel like this again for the rest of the story. It'll be a lot different. So thank you guys for being here. Any other questions, thoughts? I got you out on time. Lois, wait, not, I
2: can't, may not
0: be on time yet, go ahead.
2: This is just a curiosity thing. Do you know approximately how long the Israelites worshiped in the tent before the tabernacle was built?
0: I, I believe. Um, I believe that the, Since the tabernacle was a tent, I think those terms are sometimes used interchangeably. So it can be—it's one of those things where it has more than one name. But I believe when they say the tent of meeting, that refers to the tabernacle. So a confusion. Well, it was 480 years between the construction of the between the Exodus and the construction of the temple. So this tent's been around for a long time, and they may have repaired it. I don't know, but like, um, yeah, yeah. Like I said, I I think. um, you know the tent had been around for a long time. It probably wasn't looking as good as it once did. So all the more reason where David was kind of like, "Hey, let's let's build a re- let's build a real house to God." You know, and it'll function the same way. We'll have the the the, the sacrifices and the altar. There'll be a holy place. You know, where the ark sets. I mean, it, in many ways, it is a a bigger, more opulent, more defined, more permanent tent. You know, but it has the same basic structure and outline. So. I think that, yes, yes Lee
3: One more question for the gory minded of us that always think what happens to all that blood well I was also looking that up (laughs) and it looks like there could have been a drain at the foot because it says you're supposed to pour the blood at the foot of the something and there was a drain that went down to this valley this is pretty interesting and they used it for fertilizer
0: Interesting, I had not heard that but we had talked before about how the scene at sacrifice time... I mean, I threw this in here. I don't want you to take it for granted. Like, try and wrap your mind around, at the dedication of the temple, what it would look like to have 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep sacrificed and burned. Noisy, smelly, bloody, a lot of blood, a considerable amount. I, like I said, I, I don't usually pause on those things, but... <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the, the Old the Old Testament is a book that does not always spare on the details. Some of those assassinations that we talked about last week, I cleaned that up for you too. So if you want to know more, go read it yourself. Um, but anyway, yeah, no, um, so there's your temple. And, and I think we have next week off because of uh, Easter. But um, we will hit the divided kingdom after that. And truly, if you look at your timelines, we we are closing in on the end here. But thank you guys for being here today. Have a good Sunday.